Welcome to the Outpost Bible Church podcast. My name is Pastor Alex Rodriguez. The Outpost Bible Church seeks to see men and women delivered by Christ, discipled in Christ, and deployed for Christ in His kingdom. Our values are to be Christ-centered, gospel-driven, scripturally grounded, prayerfully dependent, and mission-focused. Here, you will be able to find all of our Sunday morning and Sunday evening sermons. God bless. Father God, we come before you now in the glorious and matchless name of your Son, our Lord, our Savior, our King, the one alone who can give the forgiveness of sins and life eternal, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we now open the word and seek to hear you speak to us, God, we ask that you would grab hold of our hearts, grab hold of our minds, grab hold of our focus, and incline it heavenward, Godward, that you would drown out the noise and distractions of the world. That you would open our eyes, that we would see your wonder and your glory in the word. That here, as a church family, you would unite our hearts to both fear your name and treasure it. That you would satisfy us, Lord, with your steadfast, unchanging love. That you would lead us into truth, that we would be better equipped to know you and make you known. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. And Holy Spirit, as we do endeavor to minister the word now, Lord, albeit in a different way than we're used to, Holy Spirit, give us courage. Give us willingness and teachable hearts. And give us joy, Lord, that in these different formats, what always stays true is that you are speaking God through your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a minute, but we are jumping back into Luke. We haven't been there in, I think, five, maybe six weeks. And so some of us may have forgot where we were at. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 37 through 45. And just a little refresh on chapter 6. We saw at the beginning of 6 that the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed that he was Lord of the Sabbath. And he heals a man on the Sabbath. And then he appoints the 12 as his apostles, disciples. And he That five is a continuation of that message that Jesus was giving, that sermon of the Beatitudes. So let me read our text, and then we'll jump in. And do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. Can a blind man guide a blind man? Will they, will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? But is the law is in your own eye. How do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each is known by its own fruit, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a bramble bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he said the following regarding judging others. Quote, Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled as we are. 
But in the love of Christ, we know all about every conceivable sin and guilt. For we know how Jesus suffered and how all men have been forgiven at the foot of the cross. Christian love sees the fellow man under the cross and therefore sees with clarity. If when we judged others, our real motive was to destroy evil, we should look for evil where it is certain to be found. And that is in our own hearts. But if we are on the lookout for evil in others, our real motive is obviously to justify ourselves. For we are seeking to escape punishment for our own sins by passing judgment on others. And are assuming by implication that the word of God applies to ourselves in one way and to others in another. End quote. This passage that we're looking at, probably once, at least the beginning of it, is something that the world knows very much of. You ask the average unbeliever, what do Christians, what should Christians be believing? And they say, judge not. They misinterpret and misapply this text. Paul Washer once said, judge not lest you be judged. He said, twist not, judge not. He said, twist not scripture lest you be judged. So we have to understand this passage properly in its context, not distort it, not twist it, because what God is saying here is powerful and it's important. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning, our big idea, is that disciples of Christ are not to judge with a self-righteous and hypocritical heart, but are to graciously encourage others toward God. Let me repeat that. Disciples of Christ are not to judge with a self-righteous and hypocritical heart, but are to graciously encourage others toward God. So our first point is verses 37 and 38, and it's the principle. The principle of what's being said here. And everything else that follows is this unpacking and explaining of it. Do not judge. There are four exhortations here that the Lord Jesus Christ gives so that we can clearly see what a judgmental heart looks like. These four exhortations, you'll notice, have a cause and effect relationship. For example, do not judge, and you will not be judged. But what does that mean, church? Do not judge. Before we understand what do not judge means, we have to understand what it, does, what it doesn't mean. Jesus is not saying that we should never pass any type of judgment. We make judgments all day long every day. We're actually called to judge. To, we're actually called to judge with righteous judgments. Look at John chapter 7, verse 24 tells us. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Okay, so we're supposed to make righteous judgments. Scripture tells us that we're supposed to judge sin. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. 1 Timothy 5, 20 says, Those who continue in sin reprove in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful. 2 Timothy 4, 2, again. Christ. Listen to First Corinthians chapter five, verse twelve. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Are you not to judge those who are within the church? One more chapter over, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. Or do you not know that saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not worthy to constitute the smallest by law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? So there is a sense in which we are called to judge. But there are righteous judgments, and those righteous judgments judge one another. And this is the issue. We don't understand that part of it. How many 
stories have you heard of men and women living a church because somebody confronted them on their sin and passed out a righteous judgment? Brother, I see this in your life. It's out of line. Who are you to judge me? God knows my heart. Yeah, that's the problem. That's why I'm talking to you. We see it all the time. We have a responsibility to judge. But it is with righteous judgment. That's the key. So then what in the world does verse 37 mean? Do not judge lest, and you will not be judged. Jesus is referring here to that self-righteous, hypocritical, double-standard type of judgment. The judgment where you see others better than yourself. This is the issue throughout Luke, throughout all the Gospels that we see with the Pharisees. And if we were to go to Luke chapter 18, Jesus makes that abundantly clear. Luke chapter 18, verses 11 through 14. We'll start at verse 10. Jesus gives the following parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you like that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The Pharisee there has a double standard. The Pharisee there is blind to the hypocrisy within him. He's blind to his own sin. He judges what he sees in, in another, but he's blind to that it's within himself. This is what the audience, the disciples, the followers of Christ would have been experiencing. And so now as Jesus is teaching, Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. And he's saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to identify yourself with me, don't do that. Don't be a self-righteous, hypocritical, double-standard, judging individual. Because to follow me, there's no part of that. And the reason that is, is because the person who judges in that manner does not have a biblical view and understanding of themselves. Because they're blind to the condition of their own heart. That's not saying we never do that. We do. I'm guilty of it. But this should not mark, this should not be characteristic of the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are marked by that, that's who they are. He says you will be judged. Because as we'll see, the fruit is showing perhaps a lack of the fruit of regeneration. So there's a judgment. If you're going to judge people, then you will be judged yourself. I'll, say, I'll unpack it there a little bit later, but there's a difference between judging and being judgmental. But then he goes on, do not condemn. And you will not be condemned. That's interesting. The word condemn, it's a, it's a legal term. It means to pronounce guilt, to, to pronounce a sentence upon somebody. It's a really arrogant thing for a person to condemn a person because by doing so, they are assuming they have a level of authority that only God has. This is talking about relationships in the everyday world. This is not talking about our legal place, the legal framework. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, only God has the right to condemn since he has full knowledge of not only a person's actions, but of a person's motives. When you condemn someone, you're saying, I'm the judge and jury, not God. And if that's how you're going to live, then you will find that you will be condemned when you appear before the Lord. 
That's a strong word. Jesus, Jesus is not the feel-good preacher that people like to portray him as. These are strong words. You will be judged and you will be condemned if you live your life as a judgmental, condemning individual. Because if that is how you're living, you have no part of me. There's enough there to keep us on our faces in repentance. Does that make sense? Does everybody get that? Does Is there anything there that maybe is unclear, ambiguous, or a question to it? Okay. The difference between judging and being judgmental. That's great. What's the distinction? To judge is an act. To be judgmental is a heart posture. We make judgments all day long. We judge all the time. If I see a brother or a sister perhaps walking out of step with what they profess to believe as a follower of Christ, I go up to them and I confront. In that confrontation, I'm making a judgment call. But being judgmental is that critical, sin-seeking heart posture. That's the difference. So he gives these two things. Do not do this. Do not do this. But now he transfers to what we should do. He says, pardon, and you will be pardoned. Some translations would say, forgive, and you will be forgiven. It means to release, right? Uh, to forgive the opposite. It's the complete antithesis of judging and condemning. The first two commands were negative. This one's a positive. Jesus said, put that into practice. Instead of being a judgmental person, a condemning person, be marked as a forgiving person. And what's interesting there is to forgive someone is to acknowledge, is to recognize that you have been wronged. We're not saying sweep it under the rug. We're not saying act like it didn't happen. We're saying in light of it, let your default be forgiveness, not judgment and condemnation. And that makes sense. You choose to respond with grace and not judgment, and that is at the heart of the Christian faith, church. Forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. This is one of those verses, if you underline, you mark, you asterisk, this is one of those. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has graciously forgiven you. One of the chief characteristics that you are a follower of Christ and that you understand the gospel is that you extend forgiveness generously, graciously, and frequently because you recognize the great forgiveness you've received in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus should be slow to judge, but quick to forgive because they understand, because you understand what it is that God has done for you and what God continues to do for you. Think of how often we give God reasons each and every day to judge and to condemn us. And each and every day, God opens up the fountain of forgiveness and, wash, and washes over us, minute by minute, day by day. God forgives us of sins we don't even realize we're, con we're, we're committing against him. So Jesus is saying here, because he started off in verse 20, this whole message, it says, and turning his gaze toward his disciples, if you're going to follow me, you must be marked by a forgiving heart, a pardoning heart. That's one of the hardest things to do. And here's the reality, church, at the, at the application level. After you forgive somebody, odds are you're going to have to keep forgiving that person for that same thing because you're like, no, I totally forgive you until they press in again on that issue and you get washed over with all the memories of what they did to you and your heart gets bitter and you want to judge. And wait a minute, I said I forgive them. I have to keep forgiving 
We're experts at resurrecting things that we said we've put to rest. But we must be marked by graciously forgiving as God through Christ has forgiven us. Thoughts, questions on that part of it? Great question. So when we forgive someone, do we say, hey, I forgive you for this thing? Perhaps. Depends on the conversation. But here's what we have to understand. Forgiveness first begins within our own hearts. I have to forgive that person before I ever communicate to that person I've forgiven them. And you're forgiving someone and reconciliation are different things. I can forgive someone even if they aren't consciously aware. I didn't do anything wrong. But I have to forgive them and not hold that against them before the Lord. And then hopefully the reconciliatory aspects of it will play out and there'll be that mutual kind of mending. Um, but depending on the conversation, you might be in the midst of a conversation and say, I forgive you for that thing. Or you might say, I got to go for Christmas to the in-laws. And I've been hurt by my mother-in-law. I've been hurt by my father-in-law. I've been hurt by my dad. I don't want to go. I'm so bitter. I'm so angry. And you have to do the hard work of prayer and toiling and asking God to give you the grace to forgive them so that when you get there, you can demonstrate the love of Christ, even if that conversation never comes to surface. So was there another question with that? Yeah. Well, how do we how do we then rightly come alongside someone and pass a, a righteous judgment? Well, I think Matthew 18 gives us some parameters. First, I would say we have to make sure our hearts are in a place of tenderness. We have to be going and approaching in the fruit of the Spirit. And we should pull that person aside one-on-one. -on -one. We should not make it a public issue. And we should present it then. And the hope, the prayer would be that it would be received in grace. But then beyond that, whether it's church authority or not, I would start, you pull that first individual aside. And you approach them prayerfully, graciously. You communicate that your hope for them is, is restoration and, and the glorify, glorifying Christ in your life. Uh, beyond that, if they don't, then depending on what the circumstances is, there's, we might go through a Matthew 18 process, but pull that person aside. Um, I would start with, you know, recognizing your own heart, that we've been sinners, we've committed these sins, that we've struggled with these things. And so I say this in love. I say this because I want to see you experiencing all the joy and grace that God has to offer. I've been there coming in with humility of posture of heart, tenderness, and one-on-one. -on -one. I wouldn't say, you know, I'm going to approach you, so let me blast it on Facebook. That would not be uh, the best way to go about it. Yeah. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and boundaries as we go through this, right, is important. To forgive is to no longer hold that against them. And, and we forgive, and it enables us, by the Spirit's indwelling, to proceed forward in grace and love. But that doesn't mean, especially if that person does not acknowledge their wrongdoing, their sin, or, you know, perhaps it's even an unbeliever or something, they can, if it can cause perpetual harm or or, or even same within yourself that you don't say, until restoration is building, then I need to put space or boundaries between how I engage with that person, is what I would say. But that is a sermon in itself. But forgiveness is never at the expense of wisdom. You know, to use a, you know, an illustration, um, if you had an abusive parent and you're out of the home now and you forgive them, right, that doesn't mean you put yourself in a position to be abused again, whether it be verbally or whatever. Um, so the gentle serpents, why, uh, why is the serpents gentle as doves? Um, well, he goes on then, and he says here, give, and it will be given to you. 
They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measured, it will be measured to you in return. So again, here's a positive. Being understood in light of judging, condemning, pardoning. The imagery is that of somebody going into the marketplace to purchase grain. And it's received back. You see it says here, they will pour into your lap. In this picture here, the they is God. And in this scenario, you are receiving back. And put simply, what we see here is the principle of reaping and sowing. What you give to others is what you receive from God to some degree. If you sow disunity, if you sow judgment, if you sow discord, you will be judged, you will be condemned. But if you are an individual of grace, an individual of forgiveness, then the Lord deals graciously with you. The Lord deals in that tender way with you. We know this is true. Just, just think about how our, our walk with the Lord has been. When you are most judgmental, when you are most critical, when you are most hard-hearted, you receive the discipline of the Lord. But when you are walking in grace, when you are walking in forgiveness, when you are walking in the Spirit, the Lord deals graciously with you. There are blessings given there. Those who give grace become even bigger recipients of grace. And he makes it clear. He says, pour into your lap good measure. What that means is back then, they would wear these robes, and sometimes you would gather some of the robe in your arms, and it would create like this little basket, and grain would be poured in there. But to make sure that it was given to you accurately, it would be pressed down. It's a measuring cup. You pack it. You make sure there aren't any spaces in there so that you get the correct amount. You shake it to make sure it fills the empty spaces. But it says, running over. Not only will the Lord give you that amount back, but it's an abundant blessing. I'm going to give you extra. You are going to receive abundant blessing from the Lord. Now, I want to clarify something. For the, by the standard you measure, it will be measured to you in return. Motivations matter. We are not seeking to be that gracious, forgiving person simply to get something back. That's mercenary. We first and foremost seek to be that because we so understand what God has given to us that we didn't deserve. That instead of judgment, we've received righteousness. Instead of condemnation, we've received justification. Instead of judgment, we've received pardon. And that so fills and overwhelms our heart that we want to extend that out to others. We want to glorify God. We want to say, Lord, I recognize what you've done. And I want others to experience that in some portion. I want to make much of you. So you're not doing it necessarily for simply to get something back, but God does bless it because as we live in this way, God's grace is given out to us in abundance. And we get to see, experience, and delight in more of him. It is better to give than to receive, Jesus says. There's more blessed to give and receive, it says, in Acts regarding the teachings of our Lord. Because there is a participatory component of, wow, this is what it feels like. Think about that person that's so hard to forgive. That person you want to judge. That person you want to condemn. They have wronged me to the very core of my being. But then you walk in faith, you submit to the Lord, you trust, and you extend pardon. You extend grace to them. And then you reflect and you're like, wow, that was so hard for me. And yet I am far worse in the sight of God and God is forgiven. It, it expands your understanding of the grace and love of God. There is such a blessing in being a gracious person who forgives rather than a judgmental person who condemns. Because you understand the gospel more intimately. And that's beautiful. Again, the difference between judging and judgmental is that one is that judging can be right or wrong. You, you can have right judgments, but 
judgmental is a sinful character quality. So here's the question for us, for you to, to, to be confronted with here. We often judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions, right? Would people label you a judgmental person? Not necessarily just the person you're in, in conflict with, but those people overall in your life, those people that God has put, those people who have mentored you, discipled you, loved you, care about, if you were to take a poll, would they say you're a judgmental person? Specifically, would, would those believers that are more mature than you label you a judgmental person? Or would they label you a gracious, forgiving person? Do you seek to be redemptive or condemning in your interactions with others? That's at the heart here of following Christ. God will always be gracious to those who are gracious with others because you're, you're looking like your father. You're representing your Lord. Henry Bosch he was the founder of that devotional, his little booklets, Our Daily Bread. He once said this, quote, Do not be too hard on the person who sins, for the yardstick you lay on another may someday be used to measure for you. Oh, be gracious and judge not, my brother. Again, there is a right type of judging. We would probably call that accountability. And accountability will feel like judgment to the person who does not want to deal rightly with their sin. But we are not to have a judgmental heart posture that is just doling out judgment at every turn, condemnation at every turn. So, I don't know where I, I, I heard this. It was maybe one of my seminary professors. I remember I wrote it down in my Bible. He said, here's three questions to help you not become the judgmental person. Before you speak, ask yourself, is it true what you're about to say? Is it kind and is it necessary? Because our culture distorts words, maybe kind, maybe, is it gracious? Because again, judging somebody for their sin with a redemptive purpose is a gracious act. So is it true is it kind or gracious? Is it necessary? Think about how that would change our interactions just in our homes. Think about how that would change marital dynamics. Is it necessary right now? The right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. Imagine if the Lord dealt with us in our sin every single moment as it's happening. Imagine if the Lord just confronted you and put your sin before you always as soon as it happened. I'd be in a psychiatric ward. I'd have a mental breakdown. So is it true? Is it kind and is it necessary? Are great practical ways to do the self-assessment before we open our mouths? Are we walking in judgment or are we walking in grace? And grace is shown through pardon. So that's our, our first point. Any questions or further explanations needed on that point? Right. So we're exhibiting Christ. We are redemptive. Right. John 3.17, Susan said, that he sent his son into the world to save, not to condemn. That was in Jesus. He's going to come back and he's going to judge. But that's his responsibility. And here in this life now, we walk in that purpose. We want to see redemption. We want to see salvation. We want to see sanctification. We want to see restoration. But that's not going to happen if we're walking around with the billy club of judgment rather than the healing gauze of pardon. And that is hard. So Jesus now, in verses 39 through 42, gives us these pictures of how this plays out. And the first one is, is the blind man. He says, can a blind man, verse 39, can a blind man guide a blind man? Will they both not fall into a pit? 
Well, it's pretty simple what he's saying there, right? If I'm at the Grand Canyon and I'm blind, I'm not going to ask the blind guy to give me a tour. It's not going to go well. So who does the blind man represent here? Well, there's two possible options. I think both are true. First, it would be applicable to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were spiritually blind to the fact that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah who is now before them. So they were actively leading people away from Christ. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, we read the following, Matthew 15, 14. Let them alone. They are blind, blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they will fall into a pit. Matthew chapter 23, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary that it is nothing. So Jesus often refers to the Pharisees as blind guides, guiding others. Today we would see that in the form of prosperity preachers, guiding people away from the true freedom, promising them a whole bunch of falsehoods. Or the name it, claim it. You just need enough faith and the Lord will hear you of your scoliosis, of your cancer, or whatever. Or LGBT, I can't keep up with it, the, the whole alphabet mafia affirming component of things. Those ministers who do that, blind guides. Ministers who are fine with no-fault divorces in the church, blind guides. Ministers who are okay with cohabitating before marriage, blind guides. Same thing. So there's that group of blind guides, and we have to be on, on guard against them. Don't align yourself with somebody who obviously does not have the vision to see the truth of God's word, no matter how good they make you feel. And then the second group represented here is within the immediate context of 37 and 38. The blind man is also the spiritually blind person. A blind person in this regard is of no use to another because they can't tell you where to go. They can't tell you to watch your step. They can take you nowhere but the pit of destruction here. They're blind to their own faults, but at the same time, they're judging others. Spiritual blindness is chiefly shown by the fact that you don't see the sin in you, but you see the sin in others. So both of these categories are there. I tend to think that the, the more applicable, immediate context would be going to 37 and 38, especially with what's to follow. Now, a quick word about those who are spiritually blind. You and I can't heal blind people. You may know somebody who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but everything about them shows spiritual blindness. The most important thing you do is pray because it is the Holy Spirit who must give vision. And again, search your own hearts, church. Search your heart. The, one of the evidences that perhaps you are marked by spiritual blindness is how quick to judgment you are. Because the person who's quick to judgment is blind to grace. They're blind to seeing themselves clearly. Now do you see how important it is to have the word of God? You need the word of God because in the word of God, the spirit takes that and gives us clarity of vision to see ourselves and others. The person, the professing follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not regularly in the word of God, has a vision problem. You have a vision problem. If you're not regularly in God's word, you may not think you have a vision problem. I remember when I first got glasses, I never thought I needed them. But I was like, yeah, Margaret was getting contacts. I'm like, let me go get them. So I sat in the chair. I was like, sure, I'll take a vision test. And it, went, it was like going from VHS to 4K. 
But I never knew it. I was operating just fine, I thought. So often people, even in the church, we think we see things as God sees them, but we're not in God's word. Then we go to God's word, and it's like everything becomes clear. And you're like, wow. The word of God does that work for us. So my question for you, my challenge to you, and for myself is, how would you assess your spiritual vision? Do you have 2020 vision right now? Do you need some big old spiritual bifocals to get some work done right now? Or are you downright blind? You and I need to examine ourselves so that we don't guide others into the pit. Because the call of a disciple is to teach others to observe. You're guiding somebody whether you realize it or not. The question is, are you guiding them into a pit because you're blind? Are you guiding them to glory because your vision has been made clear through the word of God and the spirit of God? The word of God is a lamp unto our feet. Psalm 119, 105. And that's also a warning to be careful who you're following. Be careful who you're following. Make sure the person you're following has clearer vision than you. Any thoughts, any, any questions there, things to, to be further explained? Okay, so he goes on now. He goes from the blind to the teacher-student dynamic here. Verse 40, a student's not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. And remember, this is, this is the Beatitudes. You can take Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes and call it Discipleship 101. These are the basics to follow Jesus. What does following Jesus look like? Remember, he's the great teacher. We will never outpace Christ. We will never exceed Christ. All who follow him are his students. He is our ultimate and chief example. And what's interesting is the word student here is the Greek word mathetes, which is also translated disciple in other parts of the New Testament. And interestingly, the word disciple, mathetes, is only found in the Gospels. So verse 20, he was gazing upon his disciples. Now he's saying this teacher-student dynamic. He's saying, I want you to be fully trained. I want you to at least graduate out of the elementary school of discipleship so that you can come alongside others. So that you'll be like me. You'll never master it. You'll never exceed Christ. Well, you can't be his apprentice. You can't teach people as he's taught you if you have a teachable and humble heart. Jesus is giving the remedy here to what he said. Judgment, condemnation. Be a student. Be teachable. Look to me. Learn from me. Imitate me. Receive that full training. And then you will be able to make disciples. And here's the reality, church. The quality of your disciples is reflective, reflects if you're sitting at the feet and learning from Jesus. Let me just say, be careful, especially in today's culture, because it makes us feel good. Don't be a better servant to the church than you are a student of Christ. Learn from him and then imitate him and help others be fully trained. 2 Timothy 3, 16, right, in 17, right? Verse 17 says, so that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is what our Lord does in and through his word and by his spirit. He trains us so that we will be fully trained, thoroughly equipped to do his will and make disciples. And here he's saying it starts by not being judgmental. Because a judgmental person can never learn. A judgmental person is so busy looking down that they can never have the, hum the humility to, to receive. If you're judgmental, you may be sitting in, in Jesus' classroom, but you're not learning what he's teaching. You can sit in the church and not be learning what Christ is in instructing us. 
And that's important for when you seek somebody who's discipling you. Seek someone who is deeply grounded in the Word of God. Seek someone who is constantly learning from Christ. Don't seek somebody to teach you who seems to know it all and have all the answers. See someone who has an insatiable hunger to learn more of Christ and walk with Christ, Christ more thoroughly. So often we seek out the most biblically knowledgeable person. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. But just because you're biblically smart does not mean you're biblically equipped. Christ doesn't simply seek to inform. He seeks to transform. That we would resemble him, not only in the content of what we believe, but in the way that we live. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, teaching them to observe, to obey all that you've commanded. We have smart devils that aren't very obedient. And so here, the blind, they're no help to you. Come to the teacher, come to Christ, be the student, receive, learn from him, imitate him. And then he goes on to this next one, verse 41. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? One of the hardest things for us to do is self-examination. But we're called to do that. Look in the mirror. It's, it's humorous, it's comical the way Jesus puts it here. You see a speck in your brother's eye, but you don't see the telephone pole hanging out of your face. How do you, and how do you notice this speck in your brother's eye if you have a telephone pole protruding out of your face? The point here, these are people that are more focused on finding faults in others than in themselves. Therefore, the one who sees the speck and not the log is the self-righteous, judgmental person who Jesus here calls, in verse 42, a hypocrite. You're so concerned about the wrong, about the sin in them, but you're totally at peace with yours? You're a hypocrite. You don't really care about sin. You care on being better than them, presenting yourselves that way. And the reality is, you and I will not clearly see what's in someone's eye, so to speak, until we have our own vision corrected. You won't see it properly. So we must at first examine ourselves according to God's word. We must remove the sinful telephone poles that are in our eyes. We must remove the obstructions, and then and only then can we properly come alongside someone and says, then you will see clearly to take out the speck. We are, gonna, we are to do that. But we must do that after we've corrected our vision in humility before the Lord. Questions? Explanations? Okay. A good way to illustrate this is when you go on a flight and you do the safety check before takeoff. And they say, in the event of whatever, and the oxygen mask drops, what are you supposed to do? You put yours on first, right? So you don't pass out for lack of oxygen. And then you help the other. Same principle. You have to take the log out of your own eye before you pull the speck out of another's. Again, the challenge question for us here. Are you more critical of the sins of others than your own? And this is why accountability matters and right, righteous judgment matters because it's amazing what you can get used to. You might be walking around with like four telephone poles sticking out of your face and you just go uncomfortable with it. So you don't realize it anymore. Until a brother or sister says, hey, you got a little something there. So we should receive that, not be defensive. For those who are taking notes, maybe write down what is the current log in your eye that you're refusing to deal with. Our final point, point three, is the purpose, verses 43 to 45. Some passages are just so self-explanatory that you don't really have to say a whole lot, except ouch. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, 
nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a bramble bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. What Jesus is saying here is clear. A healthy tree produces healthy fruit. A rotten tree produces rotten fruit. And the fruit here is the product of one's life. Are you a tree that is planted and rooted in Christ? If you are, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the receiving of his Holy Spirit, the submission to his word, then he is working in and through you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That is the promise to every true blood-bought Christian that Christ will give you a fruitful life of faith which evidences that you are, your life is found in him. But if you look at your life, and I'm not saying you never have a bad apple in your life. We all do. But if your life is marked by just bad fruit, judgment, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, pride, anger, all these things, then you have to ask yourself, what am I rooted in? Is the root Christ? No. This isn't what Christ brings about. You think of John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Are you planted in the soil of God's grace and righteousness through Christ? Or are you planted in the soil of the world? And one of the ways we see it in this passage is the good tree that produces good fruit is gracious toward others, not judgmental and condemning, not blind and a bad guide. Your fruit reveals your root. You produce according to what you are. Again, we are all works in progress. Sanctification is at work in us. We aren't what we should be, but we, by the grace of God, aren't what we used to be. But where's your fruit? Were you more gracious, kind, forgiving in the beginning of your walk than you are now? Are you more cynical now than you were in the beginning? Here's the thing about fruit. Fruit's always honest. Apples will always come from apple trees. Where is the fruit of your life coming from? Is the fruit in your life good or bad? Are you inspecting your fruit? Yes, God's grace covers a multitude of sins, but it doesn't give you license to have bad fruit or no fruit. And you can't keep saying, you know what, Ma, I'm a good tree, I'm a Jesus tree. But you got devilish fruit in your life. That's what he says here. You don't gather figs from thorns. Your fruit really reveals who you are. We're not saved by works, but works evidence whether we have truly come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there a growing good fruit harvest? in the life you live. Ask the people who know you in the church. Ask the people closest to you that are in Christ. Hey, can you do a little fruit inspection over here? You might be like James and the giant peach, beautiful on the outside or rotten on the inside. Christ will bring about good fruit, but we must submit ourselves to him. We must come to him by faith. We must be planted in the soil of scriptures. We must do away with self-righteous judgment and condemnation. We must be forgiving. We must obey. We must follow the teacher and be his student. We must surround ourselves with good biblical teachers. This is what must happen if we are to be truly his disciples. Questions there before we land the plane. No, that's that deals more with some eschatology stuff. Oh, okay, um, sorry. 
That's for a different day. Sorry. For a whole other series. Um, but I, get, I get the connection. A good question. Any other thoughts, questions, explanations? So let's land the plane now. I'm the, back on the runway of the gospel here. Here's a very important truth, church, for us to, to grasp as followers of Christ. How you and I judge, how you and I forgive, how you and I extend grace to others reveals what we really believe about the gospel. Is the gospel the good news that God, by his grace, for his glory, saves sinners through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Yes. Do you understand what that means? It's not just a transaction that gets you into heaven. How you judge, forgive, extend grace reveals your understanding of what you just said you believe. The person who is judgmental and condemning has not grasped truly the extravagant grace of God given to them through faith in Jesus Christ because they are a vile, hell-deserving sinner. You actually don't think you're that bad. Because you don't think you're that bad, that means you think you can judge others. They're not, what are they doing? They're not like me. I would never do that. But when you recognize, like the Apostle Paul, that I am the foremost of sinners, and yet God has forgiven me. He has removed his righteous judgment of me. He has not condemned me. That when he, appear, when he returns and I appear before the judgment seat of Christ, I don't receive condemnation, but I receive commendation. When you understand that that's what he's done for you, you pump the brakes on judgment and condemnation. And you seek to be as forgiving as possible because you understand the gospel. If you're unforgiving, you're not realizing that God had absolutely no reason to forgive you. You brought nothing to the table that would merit God's forgiveness at all. And the reason you are forgiven, justified, loved, adopted is strictly by the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who always did the will of the Father, who sought to please the Father at every turn, and then who went to the cross and suffered the full wrath of God against sin on your behalf. You did nothing to merit his forgiveness. So now, how dare you withhold forgiveness from others? To the degree you don't forgive is to the degree you don't get the gospel. You don't understand it. And I'm preaching that to myself. And lastly, if you're not giving grace as you've received it, then once again, you don't understand the gospel from start to finish is the gospel of grace. This is discipleship 101. This is why Jesus throughout this whole thing is telling us this is what it looks like to walk it out. He went through the blessed are the poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are when men, men hate you and exclude you for his, the sake of his name. Love your enemies. He goes through that. And now he says, and don't judge. Don't condemn. Be forgiving. Flip the world on its head. Be radical. We live in a world that says, no, you know what? You wronged me. I get to judge you. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, stop. If you're going to follow me, then you swim against the current. You forgive and you give grace. Because when you do so, you're professing that you understand what I've done on your behalf. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you humbly, recognizing that you would be just and right to judge us. You would be just and right to condemn us. And you will judge and condemn those who do not come to Christ by faith. But by faith, you have made a way to receive full pardon. Father, help us by your Holy Spirit to see it, to know it, to experience and to embody it. Lord Jesus, use us. We want to be conduits of the pardon and the grace received toward others. <clears throat> we want to be true disciples. Forgive us, Lord, for when we're judgmental. Forgive us for when we're condemning. Forgive us when we withhold forgiveness. Help us crucify that within us and put it to death. 
And help us walk, Lord, as you walk, Lord Jesus. And we thank you that by faith, we're not responsible to make ourselves good trees, but that you promise to bring about fruit in our lives as we hold fast to the Lord Jesus, that he is the vine and we are the branches. We are the tree planted beside the still waters. You will nourish, you will strengthen, and we will give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.